Welcome to the 265th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with New York Times bestselling author, Joseph Fender. And one programming note, this interview was originally recorded last year in 2019. Stay tuned for the interview. This episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm is the first and only company which lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Support your favorite local bookstore and you can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated list from the people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. There's a special offer now for reading and writing podcast listeners. Get three audiobooks for the price of one, $14.99, with your first month of membership, just use the code RWPODCAST. Again, that's Libro.fm, purchasing audiobooks from your local bookstore, and use the code RWPODCAST. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is New York Times bestselling writer, Joseph Fender. Fender's latest novel, Judgment, has just been published. Joseph, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Judgment, your new novel yet, how would you describe it? It is a conspiracy novel about a female judge in Boston who makes one mistake and finds that her life is turned upside down. That's the basic setup for Judgment. And and do you remember what what was the original impetus or idea behind uh, writing Judgment? Yeah, you know, I um, we when we see judges on TV or movies, you know, we see them in the courtroom. We don't really have a sense of what their life is like at home. And I met a judge a few years ago, a woman in Boston, and I just began to talk to her about what it's like to be a judge, what your friends think about it. How careful do you have to be, you know? And she told me that she she drives below the speed limit. She never wants to get a ticket. You know, she, she has to be careful not to get into trouble, not to make a scene in public. Judges, as it turns out, judges are really vulnerable people, and they have to be careful. And that's, to me, I found that intriguing. So I sort of thought, what would happen if a judge, a woman, it had to be a woman, uh, was she's married and she has a couple of kids and she's at a law conference a thousand miles from home in Chicago and she meets a guy, she has a one drink too many and she sleeps with the guy and she decides, they decide at the end of this, you know what, this can never happen again. This, this is a one-time thing. It must be forgotten. It turns out when she goes back to Boston, this guy enters her courtroom and he's a lawyer representing a case that she's judging. And she's stuck because she doesn't know what to do. If she recuses herself, she has to explain why. 
And if she does, people will know that she basically broke her marital vows. She was unfaithful. So she finds herself trapped, and it just gets worse from there. <laughs> well, well, you described it as a conspiracy thriller. I think also a political thriller could, could be the word. Yeah. Um, given the flood of political news, uh, both good and mostly bad these days, did it ever worry you that reality would outpace your, your novel and your plot? Um. No, I, you know, I wrote, I really wrote this book a year, two years ago. And um, I was in fact sort of predicting something in the book. And that's this whole story with the Russian oligarch. And my feeling is we're going to find out in the next year or two, the power of these Russian oligarchs who are rich men who actually are doing Putin's bidding. And Americans don't really get that yet. So it's not that I was afraid of events passing me by. I just sort of thought, what if everyone knows this by the time the book comes out? And they don't. So I sort of think that this whole piece about about oligarchs in the book will be fresh to a lot of people. And and so in terms of your research about oligarchs, what what do you think is, is going on? Well, one of the things um, that I learned is, and I learned from talking to a guy named Bill Browder, who wrote a book called Red Nose. Bill told me, and he's considered to be Putin's enemy number one, Bill told me that Putin has basically made a deal with these oligarchs, these rich guys in Russia. He will protect them as long as they protect him, and they have to stay away from any kind of domestic Russian politics. And what I've learned in my research is that some of these rich guys, some of these oligarchs, the money is not theirs. The money is really Russian government money, and they pretend to be free agents, but they're really agents of Russia. And I thought that is an interesting situation. People don't get that yet. That's going to be that's going to be one of the aspects of this book. And and so you were researching the the idea of compromat. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Exactly. Um, did, did it occur to you that we'd be seeing it on the scale that we're starting to see it in the American political process? Um, and I, and I guess I guess if you yeah. want to if you want to take a moment and, and explain what it is. Yeah, compromat is a Russian word that's short for compromising material, and that is damaging information about a politician or a public figure that is used for blackmail or extortion. Compromise, I mean, it's been around for years, and the thing is, the Russians are really good at it. One of the things I learned in researching the book is that compromise is what Putin used to grease the skids, to sort of get ahead in Russia, to become the, the president of Russia by using compromise against his opponents. And if I, it occurred to me, what would happen if a Russian oligarch used compromise against an American citizen. What would happen? You know, we hear a lot of talk, and I don't want to get involved in this argument about whether the president himself is compromised by Russian compromise, mm-hmm. right? But we hear about it every day now. And it sort of thought, I sort of thought this would be interesting if this affects the everyday life of my judge. So, so what was the research process for? Once you had the idea about the judge and you had this conversation with this mm-hmm. female judge, what, what was the research process for 
uh, like for you when you started working on judgment? This is the first thing I did was, so I realized I didn't know anything about the life of a judge. So I interviewed five women judges in Boston. Three of them were superior court judges, and my fictional judge is a superior court judge. One was a federal judge, and one was a retired chief justice. And I asked all kinds of questions, all kinds of silly little questions about what their lives are like, what their home lives are like, what it's like in the chambers when they're not um, actually sitting on a trial, um, what that's like. And I got a real sense of the pressures that a judge faces. And so I did. So that was the major part of my research. Also, I'm not a lawyer, so I had to spend time talking to lawyers to making sure I to make sure I got my legal scenes as correct as possible. And did you have any early readers um, in the legal field? Who, yeah, who I did. Yep. I did. Yeah, I, I especially had one lawyer friend of mine who read it to make sure I didn't make any mistakes. And and I, I and I, he cleaned up. He, he caught some glitches and. I, I think I think we're good now. That's good. So so what's the actual writing process like for you? Do you outline your novels extensively before you um, start working, or is it more of an organic process? Um, it is in between. The, there there are two schools of thought in terms of how you write a book. Some people feel you just start with your premise and you just don't know where it's going to go every day. You sit down and you just start writing and then see what pours out. Um, the, another way of doing it, and this is, was taught to me by the novelist, Robert Ludlum. Ludlum told me to interview, to, to, excuse me, after you're done with your interviews and your research to outline as, as, as detailed as possible. And so Ludlum would do interview, uh, excuse me, he would do outlines that were 150 single space type pages. I tried that with one book and I found it was really boring. <laughs> because I wanted to sit down in the writing process and not know for sure what was going to happen. So instead, what I do is I know what a scene is supposed to accomplish. I sit down, I write, and I don't know where it's going to go. So I let myself, I create what I call a beat sheet of the major turning points in the story. And the smaller beats, I have to fill in myself when I sit down and write every day. So every day of writing is a surprise and a challenge to me. And I think that makes it more surprising to the reader. Got it. So as I mentioned earlier, you're a New York Times bestselling writer. Uh, I'm curious, do you, do you remember writing the first novel that you had published? Yeah, I sure do. And, and, and what was that experience like? Had you always wanted to be a writer? What, what was your life like at that point? Yeah, um, it's funny. I wanted to be a writer since I was probably 10 years old. Uh, and I discovered a book, and I wrote to the author of this book called The Wonderful Flight to the Mushroom Planet. <laughs> no, I, I know it. Oh, do you? Well, yeah. You know, the author is Eleanor Cameron. I loved this series of three books, I think. Yeah. Loved these books. I, I read I those in grammar school. Cameron. I still remember them. And do you, do, you, do you remember back in the day, if you wanted to write to an author, you sent a letter to the publisher, and months would go by before you heard, heard anything back? So I wrote to Eleanor Cameron. I had all these questions about it, about her story. And I got a form letter back a few months later, but I saw the return address on the envelope. So I wrote to her home, 
And I said, but you haven't answered my questions. <laughs> and she wrote back a long, long letter to me answering my questions. And that was my first realization that behind every novel is somebody who makes these narrative decisions. How cool would this be? What kind of a job would this be, I thought. I thought this would be a really cool thing to do. And I wanted to be a writer since I was 10. But my parents talked me out of it. They told me that I basically had to get a real job and make some money and support myself. So when I got to be in my 20s and I was thinking about whether I was going to be a Russia expert, whether I was going to be a spy, whether I'd work for the CIA, at one point I said to myself, you want to write a novel? You're never going to know unless you try. And I gave myself three years, a deadline of three years, to try to write a novel and see if I could get it published. And I said, if I get a publisher within three years and it's enough to support me for a year or two, I'll do this. And sure enough, within three years, I was able to get a publisher. In fact, I got 20 publishers around the world. And um, that's when I decided I could become a writer. That was my first novel, The Moscow Club. So I really, it was, it was touch and go. I didn't know whether I'd make it or not, but I wrote the book. I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it probably 25 times. And uh, uh, it was rejected a bunch of times. And each time the book was rejected by an agent, I took their criticisms and rewrote the book. So the book that was published as The Moscow Club had almost nothing to do with the book that I started <laughs> writing three years earlier. It was very different. And so what, what were you doing at that time? Were you only writing or did you have like a day job? I had a day job. I was teaching writing at Harvard to uh -huh. undergrads. Uh, I was teaching political writing, which is so I published a nonfiction book. So I was an expert at that. I was teaching writing to these undergrads while trying to write a novel myself. Great. Well, given your writing success, what advice would you have for as aspiring writers who might be listening? The most important thing is um, to read, to read a lot. This is one thing that Stephen King says in his book on writing, which is a great book. Um, you've got to read a novel, you've got to read a bunch of novels in order to figure out how they work, how they're put together. And I gave myself my own sort of graduate course in writing thrillers by reading as many good and bad thrillers as I could read. And I took notes on them, index cards. And uh, uh, I learned sort of what made a good book, what made a good opening, what made a good hero, what made a good character, secondary character. Uh, and I learned all that from reading. So I think that the most important thing that, uh, that a writer can do is read. And, and on that note, what books have you read lately, fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend? Oh, gosh, I've, I've read so many. Um, I read a nonfiction book called Dope Sick about the, about the uh, opiate crisis, which is really powerful. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Bad Blood, which is about a company called Theranos, sort of a Silicon Valley company story. That was it's fascinating. Um, I've also read a novel by Greg Hurwitz called Out of the Dark, which I liked a lot. Harlan Coben has a new book coming out called Runaway. So I've read a bunch of books that are good. Great. Well, if someone is interested in learning more about you, where can they find you online? 
I have a brand new website now, josephfinder.com. Just redid it. F-I-N-D-E-R. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with New York Times bestselling writer Joseph Fender. Fender's latest novel, Judgment, is in bookstores now, so go grab a copy. And Joseph, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks for having me. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.